and welcome to the fourth episode of the Vetspective for Vets podcast, the home of veterinary know-how from Vet Partners Best and Brightest Vets. My name is Claire Whittle and myself and my co-host Amy Saran. Hello. We'll be hosting today's discussion on the key to any veterinary career, what makes a good vet and ultimately a good leader. Joining us today is one of our vet partners colleagues from the north, uh, Matt Haslam from Willows Farm Vets in Cheshire. Now, Matt is the clinical director at the Willows, and he's also um, a member of the Vet Partners Farm Executive Board, along with me, uh, which is responsible for shaping the strategy of the 25 farm practices that make up all of the Vet Partners Farm division. So thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Matt, we're going to jump straight in. So what elements of your veterinary upbringing from university onwards have helped you to shape your career? So my veterinary upbringing, my career was fairly conventional um, from from graduating. So I uh, started in mixed practice, then decided that I had a passion for farm work. I did the internship at Lambert Leonard in May, um, which I absolutely loved. And then I pretty much worked in dairy, uh, entirely dairy practice for the first five years. Um, But then in 2013, I left to work for industry. Um, So I did a year at MSD, Animal Health. And then I worked for a much smaller uh, pharmaceutical and biotech company uh, that was mainly focusing on uh, aquaculture and fish farming. So I was working there for about four and a half years and then I've come back into practice and uh, working and uh, managing the team at the Willows. Why the, te- why the, why the leave, um, why the departure, I suppose, from, uh, from standard practice? Was that just like an itchy feet thing? Yeah, I think, yeah, exactly. I think that's it, that every, well, not every vet, a lot of farm vets get that after you're able to do an LDA and you're able to do a C-section and you've got your routine vets, it's, you, you know, your routine visits, it's kind of right, well, what next? Is this going to be me till I'm 65? You know, without with you know working in the same place. I absolutely loved my uh, my job at LLM, and I'm still very close to the team there. Um, but yeah, I, I felt like uh, felt like a, a different career path. And you now know an awful lot about fish farming because I've had many a conversation with you. I can tell you a lot <laughs> about fish farming. I can tell you about shrimp, tilapia, salmon, the lot. So Matt, what did you what did you learn? What were the main things you learned while you were outside of the sort of frontline betting? So, you know, a lot of it is sort of the the corporate side of life. Um, you know, you you move away from the frontline betting, the carvings, the C sections, the the routines, you know, and you're actually running and part and running and being part of a business. Um, and you sort of realize that when you were at vet school and you were spending all your time learning about like Krebs cycle and the cranial nerves and guinea pigs and all that sort of stuff. But there are actually all the people out there that were doing really other interesting degrees. You know, they were doing politics, they were doing sociology, they were doing economics. And just going outside of the veterinary practice and, and working with those people, I found, I found really interesting, just people with a different insight to you. So you always wanted to be a vet, I'm assuming, since you were very young. That's what most of us tend to find. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like most of the vets you speak to have wanted to be a vet since they were like in utero. You know, they've done all, they've cleaned out all the kennels, they've worked on the pig farms, they've done all the volunteering. And, you know, you've, 
you've just gone into it with just complete blinkers on being a vet, you know, and you've never really had any of the training or any of, and ever embraced any of the softer side of, of either managing people or leading a business. And then you get to a point in your career when you can do all the betting and then you're actually promoted into a management role and you've never had any training on it at all. Because people think our job is about animals, isn't it? It's just about working with animals. That's what people think. I think often when they think of a vet, you work with animals. But actually, that's not the case at all. It's very much a people job. Ah, absolutely, 100%. And those people are both the people, you know, the owners of the, of the animals, you know, the farmers, and everybody in the farming team as well. You know, you've got to engage with everybody at, you know, at every level on farm. But also it's your colleagues in the management and everything in your practice as well. And it's sort of understanding how to communicate with all those different people. And is, as a vet, you come across so many different personalities every single day and you're having to communicate to them and get your point across and try and affect change when people can be completely different. So what's, what's the answer there? Like, what? how do we... How do we sort of recalibrate people's ideas of what uh, it means to be a vet? Is this something we should be starting in vet schools or should, um, you know, should training start sort of immediately when you've got your new job? Like how, how do we build more structure in? I think it's, I think it's, that's a really good question. But for me, I think it, it starts right the way down at the type of people that we're bringing into vet school. I think historically we've been sort of, focusing on the academic side of of vetting, you know, those people that are straight A students that have, you know, like I said, wanted to be a vet all their life and and sometimes be quite blinkered in their their life experience. And, And I think changing the people who we recruit and bring into the veterinary profession at undergrad level is one thing to, to really get right. And then, yeah, I think there's a role for it at vet school. I think I think we do have sort of communication skills training and we have, you know, you'll have your observed clinical exams and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I qualified 12, 13 years ago now and it's probably changed a lot. But, you know, we're, we're only ever getting trained by other vets a lot of the time as well. And I think that's something that the profession could learn a lot from. It's interesting what you say there about... Um going into vet school and the experience that you require because I always think everyone should probably have at least six months to a year in a customer facing position even if it's part-time whether it's working in a shop or a bar people tend to scoff at those sort of things sometimes and actually those are the opportunities when you come across those different personalities and you can really hone your skills aren't they? Absolutely and that's part of the problem with the recruiting into vet schools is a lot of the time the sort of eight, 17, 18 year olds, when you're applying for your, for your place at uni, you've had to spend every free moment doing your, your, your pre, your, whatever it's called, your clinical EMS, or, you know, you were volunteering, your parents were supporting you while you were, and my parents supported me while I was volunteering at a local wildlife hospital. People who've got jobs and who are working part time whilst doing their studies physically, you know, even if they're working in a service role, they can't do the stuff that enables them to get onto the vet course. So how are we expecting people to have those softer skills when all they've done is ever be around vets since they were 13? I think that's a, that's a much bigger conversation about the, the diversity of intake into, into vet schools and 
how we perhaps need to, to look at other avenues and consider different barriers to, uh, to admission in the first place? You know, I don't think we're alone. I think if you, I think we should be proud about how our, how our industry is perceived. I think if you speak to a lot of people and you tell them you're a vet, you know, they'll quite often say, oh, I'd rather go see my vet than my GP. You know, and, and I think our, we should be quite proud of our bedside manner and our communication skills as well. You know, I think our, uh, you know, there are other, other professions that, that, that struggle with this because we don't get the formal training. And that's my, my view that I think you, you've got to seek, you know, it's up to us to seek out that experience and seek out that training rather than it being sort of in, inter, integrated into our training from, from day to era. So how do you think we achieve that? So I think one would be our role in the industry to try and influence the universities and sort of, you know, at the end of the day, we're the employers, we're the people who will provide the graduates with the jobs. And we've got to go back to the universities and say, these are the type of people that we want to employ. You know, these are the soft skills that we want them to have. And at the end of the day, the university that can create those well-rounded excellent vets with great communication skills that just fly on into their careers you know will be the ones that people want to go and go and study at you know and, and create that supply and demand for those people graduating from those better vet schools that are training them on the softer stuff as well. How can we instill some of these qualities in practice though so if we do have young vets starting in the team how do we go about it from there? Um, I think you've got to lead by example I think you've got to try and create that culture, whatever you know, whatever culture and communication culture that you're looking to to instill in a business has to come from the top, you know, from the leaders in that business, but right the way, right the way through, you know. And I think we build it in as part of the review process as well. Yeah, I think we're we're quite guilty of um, well, certainly I was that when you qualified, you saw reviews as like biggest eye roll ever or you know here's your roles and responsibilities here's your review here's your annual review and you just think just let me crack on and be a vet but it's trying to it's trying to change that attitude I think is what is um is what's really important and make the roles and responsibilities and the management side of things live it's a bit like it's a bit like the herd health plan on farm like if you if you go on farm and you've got a herd health plan and you're going through and you're tick boxing and just filing it away for next year, you're never going to make any changes on that farm. If you're approaching your annual reviews and your team meetings like that, you just sat there with boxes to tick, it's going to be the same. They'll just file away and then it gets dusted off and brought out of the next review. You've got to live it. You've got to you've got to be part of that process all the time, every day in the in the practice. I think that's um, that's a really good point. And I, you're, you're right in what you say, like when you first sort of come into the practice, the idea of sort of doing anything paperworky based is, is not exciting. And you, you might not necessarily have your own development and that of your colleagues in, in your head. You just want to like, I just want to do a DA. I just want to do a cesarean. But I certainly, when I, as a manager, started to do management training, I thought I really wish everyone in my team would do this training as well regardless of whether they want to be leaders or not it helps them understand why I might do the things I'm doing and how I'm conducting myself as a manager so having that culture shift 
and actually really appreciating why why these decisions are, are happening is is really important so leadership training is actually for everybody yeah i completely agree and i think it's got to be a two-way thing that when you're bringing your new recruits in or new hires or whatever and you're laying out what you expect of them you know yes they need to be able to do an lda yes they need to be able to do their routine visits but you know we also expect you to treat people with respect we also expect you to champion your colleagues we also expect you to be transparent but also it's one thing letting them know what's expected of them but they need to know what they can expect from you as their manager and their leader as well you know so that they can turn around and say i'm not getting xyz you know, we said in my last review that I was going to get this from the leaders in this business. You know, they need to be able to come to you with complete transparency and honesty and, and hold you as the leader and the manager to account just as much as you're holding them as the as the new 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 kid on the block. It is interesting when you say about being really transparent as well, because I think when I was a new grad and certainly in previous roles I've had at other practices, I've been always a bit worried about saying something negative in a review. Because um, I think there was a thought that it might reflect badly on me. But actually, the more I do that, the more beneficial it is and the more I feel like I'm progressing as yeah. as it comes out, basically. It will become easier over time. But I did find that difficult as a new grad, I think, because I didn't want anyone to think badly of me. But that's not the case. I, I think as well that then depends on the the people that are around you at the time. You know, if you've got people who, you know, who are part of the, the business fabric, who've been there 15 years, coming in, you know, making a brew and, and being honest about what's just gone on, you know, what what challenging situation they've just encountered, you as the new grad wouldn't feel as bad about being transparent. I think our biz, our industry farm vets, it's a challenge, it's a tough job. You're on your own. You're in a challenging situation. You've not just got that vet in the next consulting room that you can just, you know, open the door and just say, hey, can you just help me with whatever? You know, a lot of the time you're making those decisions and you've got to be confident on farm, but you've got to balance that with a level of transparency and, and humility. Otherwise, you just become the, the arrogant arrogant farm vet that has a has a God complex. You know, nobody nobody wants to employ that person. It doesn't bode well because they don't tend to bring in foster collaboration on in with the younger vets and the other vets in their team. It's rubbish when you get people that say that's my farm. You know, you can't you can't have that attitude. It's the it's the practice farm, it's it's LLM farm, it's West Point farm, it's the Willows farm. That's kind of what you've got to try and, and build. So if if someone's listening to this and they're like, I I want to learn more about leadership, how do how do they go about doing it? And I guess the next part of my question would be, what if someone is listening to this and this is not the structure that they're seeing and they want to try and, and build a new culture in their practice? Good question. The first one I would say is that if you're wanting to be a better manager, you're wanting to be a better leader, you have to learn it. You have to learn it in the same way that you have to learn how to do a C-section, a DA, crunch the data for mastitis. You know, this is, this is people study this people write papers on it go out and read them read and read and read and, and learn whatever you can that's out there in in the scientific press or you know in the 
Economist or in Financial Times, you know, broaden your broaden your literature search away from just the vet record. You know, that would be my first thing. You know, and and also seek feedback. You know, when you're when you're doing your reviews and people are saying, Oh well, you know, you did that C section at, you know, wherever and it went really well. Ask, well, you know, did they say anything about my communication style? Did they say anything about you know, how I got on on farm or, you know, try and seek some of that feedback from the rest of your rest of your team. And if you've just joined a business and you're wanting to make culture changes, I think you just have to be the person that you're expecting everybody else to try and become. You know, if you want, if you want transparency, be transparent. If you want collaboration, be collaborative. You know, you've got to, you've got to live it. You can't just write it down. You can't write values on, you know, on an A3 piece of paper and stick it on the wall and expect that it'll happen. You've got to, you've got to be the person, I think. That comes back a bit to your values, really, doesn't it, Matt? So in terms of both being a vet and a good communicator. So if you had to sum it up, what would you say were the important values in farm vetting? I think it's, it's balancing confidence You've got to be confident you know you've, you've got to be confident in your in your ability but also balancing that with humility you know so that you can build a good build a good team and people want to work with you you know you don't just finish whatever you know finish the c-section high five everybody on the farm and clear off you know you've got to you've got to be humil- you, you just got to be humble about some stuff and, and learn learn and get back in the car and reflect on you know, how did that go? You know, were they happy with how I communicated? Were they happy with with the situation? Rather than just thinking you were great and everything was a success and going away, that period of reflection can be really quite valuable. Yeah, I think reflection is really important, isn't it? And I think when we talk, when you go back to talk about communication again, and you talk about reflecting on things, that's an area to really to really reflect on. I think sometimes we look at people, don't we? And we think, well, you get on well with some clients, you don't get on so well with others. Usually it's a communication issue somewhere along the line. Like you think yeah. someone's difficult. They probably just don't communicate the same way that you do. And that's been a big learning curve for me over the past few years, that change in how I approach things. I'm a bit of a ditherer. So I tend to give people all the, all the things they could possibly do. And that doesn't work for some people. Um, well, that's, yeah, <laughs> completely, completely agree. And, and, You'll find just I mean, and, and that's fine if you're part of a big team, and that's okay because you know, if you're the ditherer, you will gravitate to working with the dithery farms, you know, and and that's okay, you know, because that that is the most that's the most natural way to be, and that's the that's the really really good thing about having a big team of, of vets is that you can work, you know, big team of vets and big teams of clients is you can work with the people who are most suited to your personality type. But I think it's also important to read the room. Like if you walk in and that farmer is sort of, the, the, the management term is like, has got a bias for action, you know, they're like action man. Don't be there telling them, you know, oh, well, her, pre, her pre-carving body condition of or predisposed her to the ketosis, which has led to an aptus. Wants to know if she's got a DA. You know. <laughs> and what are you going to do about it? And what are you going to do about it? Fix it. <laughs> and at the same time, you've got people who are more sort of facts and figures and will tell you that they've dropped in litres and the rumination's down and, you know, try and mirror the type of person that they that you're interacting with. 
Yeah, but why do they always tell you all of that stuff with the numbers once your stethoscope's in and you're listening to oh, the camera? 100%. <laughs> but also, that's your golden. That's the only time that you get to think, what's actually wrong with this animal? And that's the only, that's the only time you've got to think, you know, without opening your mouth. It's my special quiet time. Leave me alone. <laughs> I always say, I said, no, it's no offence to you. I'm about to go temporarily deaf. I'll be back in a minute. Yeah. Well, you know, we see that, you know, I, I've worked at a, a three different practices now. And, you know, you'll see loads of different character types. When you've been at a practice long enough, you start to get to know the clients and you start to get to know the type of personalities. But that can be difficult when you're a new grad. And it's hard to say, I guess, true to yourself and your style if you're constantly thinking about perhaps having to, I don't know, mimic someone else's, but it's not really mimicking. It's being sympathetic to the style that suits the client, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to be a snake. You know, you, you know that sort of sleazy, salesy sort of person that, you know, just flip-flops from person to person, character to character. It's not about that. It's just sort of, like I say, reading in the room and sort of picking up on those cues and sort of saying, right, okay, I need to crack on and do this now. You know, not not the dithering. Have you ever personality typed your clients? I've never done it with clients. Um, definitely done it with teams. Mm-hmm. And, and it's something that will happen. This is actually something I've found. Every industry job I've had starts with an interview stage. They do a personality like this, they call them disc profiles, don't they? Like they? They start there, which is so interesting to think that they're, they're looking to know and try and predict your behaviours at that stage of employment. You know, so are they recruiting the people? Do they see that they've got a gap in the, in the team for somebody data-minded, a ditherer? Or do they have a, um, a, a gap in the team for you know, someone that's got more of a direct approach. And I don't know, I don't know whether they're either trying to recruit into those specific roles, but it's certainly part of the recruitment process outside of veterinary, for sure. I think that- You've done that as well though, Amy, won't you? Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of independent leadership training when I first got promoted um, because I was just like, well, no one teaches us how to do this. So I did, I did do a fair bit of research sort of by myself. So I did do some personality typing and I did terrifying tasks where I had to really like open myself up to people and be like, could you please feed back to me something that I don't know about myself? <laughs> it was it was really hard. I even ended up writing um, a Vet Times article about it saying like getting to, to becoming a vet was, wasn't nearly as hard as, as honing my skills as a manager. Yeah, and you've acknowledged that in your own development process and taken about to, you know gone about that yourself i think something that we need to be looking at uh, you know as a as a business and as a group is sort of building that into our career progression it is it is now isn't it there, there yeah. are leadership courses available throughout vet partners now which is you know really progressive yeah and you know i've just started my mba which was um supported by uh by vet partners and stuff and i think something that as you you start to manage teams within our businesses. You know, if you look at the career progression as to when you become um, a new grad to an associate vet, to an experienced vet, to a clinical director, a lot of those softer skills are actually on the tick list. How you interact with a team and, you know, all that sort of stuff. 
is there that if you've got an, if you've got um, a senior vet who's looking to go into a um, a clinical director role, then these are the boxes they have to tick. These are the things they have to demonstrate, you know, and we will help you develop those, get you into that next level of, of management. I love those personality things. Those, um, what's, it, what's the ones we do? Insights, is it? They're all on our intranet. So if you're not struggling with someone, but you find it difficult to communicate, we can actually go in and look at other people's. And it's a mate, like, what comes out of them? I mean, I, I remember mine came up with an over-dependence on rules and regulations. And I was like... I don't know about that. And then everyone was like, that is you in a nutshell. That's you. And it's well, like, and you answer so quickly, don't you? You don't, you don't realise these questions and what comes out. But it's great for chatting to other people in the team. What colour were you, Claire? Blue, no, blue, green, green, yellow. Green, yellow, I think. No, yeah. I'm not yellow. That does too much. <laughs> I think we challenge everybody listening to go and do one of these colour personality tests and, and actually like let us know what they are. I think it would be yeah. fascinating to know across the business like hashtag vetspective what color are you and and let us know i want to see what the distribution across vet partners is and i think as well the interesting thing would be people that you get on this podcast ask them as well because (laughs) i can guarantee that the majority of them will be yellow so yellow just i'm yellow i'm like 98 percent yellow which is just gabber on talk 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 you know, very little attention to detail, just crack on and, and talk, you, talk your way into or out of whatever situation you've, you've landed yourself into. So, yeah, I, it, it, we had it on the brew room. We had the poster on the brew room and of where everybody sat within the business, like you say, where it's, uh, it is, it's really, really useful thing to do. You do feel like a bit of um, sort of uh, an angsty teen, when you're doing when you're doing them like it's the sort of thing you would have seen in the back of a magazine and like <laughs> you know filling in a free personality test you know but it's uh yeah it's good it is, it's useful <laughs> i should um i should point out actually the brew room that matthew alluded to there was for the southerners amongst you uh, the room where veterinary personnel retire to take their tea <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the North. So Matt, are there industries out there that do this better than vets? I think there are industries where it's a bit more visible, for sure. You know, I think I think where it's perhaps a little bit more active. You know, the the you think of like the Amazons and the Apples of this world, they're not just going to be writing uh, you know, they're not going to be doing a annual review, writing the findings on a post-it that they then lose in a pickup truck on the next on the way to their next call you know it's all there's a lot more structure in 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 other businesses than ours um but again like i said earlier i think we should be proud of how we're perceived you know i think i think we are we are perceived well as a as an industry and it's something that we are good at but i think that you know people should be actively seeking to build in those processes and sort of believe in them as well you know, I think that's what we could what we could learn learn from. I mean, one of the one of the best businesses that I like for this sort of thing is actually John Lewis. So you'll you know think how you feel when you go into a John Lewis sort of shop when you when you are allowed to. You know, you those those people are all treated as partners. You know, they're treated as the the employees are treated as partners in the business, and the same with Waitrose. Um, you know, so you kind of get the feeling that all of those people are, you know, invested in the in the company that they work for. You know, and I think that's something that we can learn. You know, that company is a massive corporate, 
you know, they're, they're, they're nationwide employ thousands of people, but people feel that way about business. And that's something that I think we can really start to deliver as vet partners is try and encourage that same sense of loyalty to the to the business. And that starts with some of these values, you know, and, and starts with the management and, and, and leadership in the business demonstrating that. It's a great culture, isn't it? I think when you walk in somewhere and you feel like there isn't a hierarchy, I think that's always a really pleasant thing to be part of. That like you just feel like every single person feels like one of the team. Yeah. And it's rare that I think, but it's yeah. so important. I don't it get is, it in. <laughs> it is, you know, and I think, you know, that's that's something that's been very historical about our industry that you you toiled and toiled and toiled as a as an intern or as a you know as a recent qualified vet and then all of a sudden you got sort of a hand on the shoulder and you were invited to the top table and you were a partner you know after 10 years of of blood sweat and tears you know and and i think it's quite nice to have those boundaries broken down you know and we're starting to see non-clinical vets or non-vets being represented on boards in special interest groups and you know that sort of stuff and i think that really is important for our for our industry to bring the skill set that is within the wider the wider group up into you know management making decisions also i know it's great having having non-vets in different sort of walks uh, professional walks of life on on our boards and stuff but now i feel like we're in a position as a company to offer very diverse careers to to the vets so you're not just funneled in through like you will do surgery until you've got arthritis and you can't do it anymore and then we'll hoof you off into an office job i don't know maybe you can answer this when you hit your five-year itchy feet stage if you had had the opportunities within a business to do all the different things and have your more diverse career, do your MBA, would you have left practice? Really good question. And I think, I think you're right that we do offer much more diversity, you know, within the, within the group, you know, there's a lot of opportunities, you know, even within just your own little business to, you know, focus on export or TB or clinical work or management, you know, there, there are lots of different opportunities. And I do think, if I'd have been able to, uh, uh, yeah, to have had that at that stage, it might have kept me within the business. I think the other thing is as well, with us being a big group of veterinary practices, I don't think that there's anything wrong with people just transferring out and, yeah, you know, going, going from one, you know, if you're, if you're working in the Southwest, you know, and, you know, dairies or whatever, all in the, you know, working in Cornwall doing Southwest and you want to see what it's like in the, in the borders, working with beef and cheap, you know, just get that change of scene within the, within that partner's business. I think that should be, that should be open for all. And the other thing I think that's important is that we create a role for people who just want to be vets. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you don't want to manage people, or you don't particularly want a commercial element to your role or, you know, anything like that, that you can, you can go and, and do that. You can be, you can just go and be a great bet. Historically, that wouldn't have been a, that wouldn't have been possible. You know, you, if you're a business partner, you had to be a partner. You had to, you know, stand there with, you know, and, and be accountable for the progression of that business. If you want to be a great bet, go and be a great bet, you know, and, and be part of the clinical steering groups and, you know, be, be focusing on best practice and telling us all the best fluid therapy regimes for flat out carbs and all that sort of stuff, you know, bring, bring that element of your role to the, 
to the table, not just be expected to manage teams. Yes, mate. I yeah. am inspired. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a, a wonderful gem to, to end on, to be honest, there, Matt. Well, there you go. How many times have you attended a webinar or listened to a lecture and thought, well, that's all well and good, but how do I actually put this into practice? Well, here at Vetspective, we hear you. Every month on our Farm Vets podcast, we're going to spend a few minutes just explaining how you can turn the lessons learned in the podcast into real life skills. And this week, we will be sharing our top tips for ensuring you are reaching your potential as a farm vet, but also preparing yourself to be the best leader. So, Matt... You've talked a lot about very, very in-depth and varied concepts today. So what I'm hoping is that we can say to a new grad who might be listening to this or someone who's maybe at odds with their career trajectory, what three things, what piece, three pieces of advice can you give to that person that will help them get on the road to being that better vet tomorrow? Okay, first one is to try and learn how to read the room. Um, learn about different personality types, learn about different communication styles and try and um, adapt your communication skills to meet the those of the clients or those people in your team. Number two would be listening um, and actively listening, not just sort of tapping around and, you know, waiting for your time to talk. Listen, listen to what that person in your team is saying and ask them the next question as well. Like ask them, you know, to explain what they what they need and what they want. Number three would be um, reflection. So getting in the car, reflecting on some of the sort of more communication-y style elements of the call. Don't just reflect on, you know, whether you injected it correctly or whether you hit or missed the vein or whatever, you know, reflect on the communication aspects of it. That's very, very good. I mean, I would always think first to reflect on the clinical outcomes and processes. Very, very rarely on how I think I made the client feel or how I made my colleague feel, whatever. That's very, very important. But, you know, it's about finding that balance between reflection and self-criticism. We can be an industry that that is too introspective. You know, and we, we can be too self-critical. And this isn't, that's not what this is about. It's not coming away thinking, oh God, did I offend them? Did I not? You know, it's about, you know, just reflecting on what came out of your mouth and how it landed with the, uh, you know, with either the client or your team member. It is interesting, isn't it? Because I reckon, what, about 90% of our complaints are due to a breakdown in communication. It's never really due to anything someone's done, like a, a practical thing. It's usually somewhere in that discussion, something's gone wrong. So I think, yeah, reflecting on it and talking about it and even talking to other people, if you've had a difficult client as well, or, you know, someone you perceive as difficult, ask someone else or ask their vet how they handle those situations. Claire, do you have any um, quick fire tips? Um, I think, I think mirroring personality is obviously important, but being yourself is a mm-hmm. two. And I think farmers, for me, they always respond to passion and I think if you show someone that you're interested in what you do and you're passionate about it and you want to know more and ask them, asking people questions is really, really important. I think if you, if, and if you like the look of, you know, if you see someone's cows and you think they look really good, tell the farmer. Yeah, that's very true. I think um, 
when I was a, a newer graduate, um, I didn't fully appreciate like the reasons behind decisions and reasons why my working conditions were the way they were. So I would be like disgruntled about something. But what I wouldn't do is go to my manager and be like, I'm a little bit unhappy about this. This is kind of what I would prefer it to be like. This is how I think I can do that or we can do that together. Is this possible? I would just sit and be disgruntled. And as a manager now, I would be furious with myself <laughs> because I'd be like, please tell me, you know, we don't always, we like to check in, but we don't always think to every single minute of the day, but we'd love for, for you guys to, to come forward and be like, look, I've got an issue because I'd much sooner sort that out and nip it in the bud or at least explain why it can't happen right now than let that simmer and build until a person just hands in their notice and says, well, it's terrible and nothing's changed. You'd be like, but I didn't know <laughs> it should have changed. I, I think a really important point on that, Amy, as well is trying, if you're in that position where you're feeling frustrated and you're feeling disgruntled, try and work out why, like what actually is it? Like try and articulate it in one sentence as to what it is that's upsetting you know, and, and, and articulate it and try and distill it rather than it just becoming a million things. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for that really, really enlightening talk. Uh, we will be back in a month's time with more in-depth discussion and knowledge from the front line of farm vetting. But for now, please don't forget to like and subscribe to the Vetspective for Farm Vets podcast, which is our new home for farm veterinary know-how for vets who want to stay in the know. We will see you next time.